Good morning. I want to thank you. I know it's, it's difficult for some of you to get in here and the weather and just cold. Like we don't really want to get out when it's cold, right? I just want to stay in bed all day long. Um, but thank you for joining us in our study in Acts. And today we'll be in Acts 13. So if you have your Bibles, just head on over there and we'll dive into the text in a bit. Today we will see the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. And from this point on, this will be the norm for the rest of the book. Paul and his traveling partners will spend the rest of their lives traveling all over the known world, proclaiming the gospel to anyone who will listen. And that sounds exciting for some of us, right? Traveling, missions, evangelism, all over the world. I'm already seeing some people like, uh uh-uh, no way, that's... To some of us, it seems exciting. Others of us, that seems terrifying. I have met Christians that seem as if their entire life is focused on this, on missions, and just getting, getting away, getting to the ends of the earth. They will say things like, I've always wanted to go on a mission trip. They're the first ones to attend an informational meeting on, on a certain place, and, or, or the first ones to sign their name on a sheet out in the foyer of those who may be interested to go. But as we can see in this passage, missions is not some haphazard thing that we just jump into because the location sounds exotic or exciting. And we actually even need to define what missions even is. If you are one of those people who has always wanted to go on a mission trip, I ask you, what are you doing to prepare for a trip like that? What are you doing in the meantime to prepare to go? Are you serving? Are you witnessing? Are you praying? Are you in the Word? Do you think that you are just going to supernaturally get off of the plane in some third world country and just start preaching the gospel when you've never even shared your story with your neighbor or your friends? Many of us want to go somewhere exotic and exciting, but if we're not preparing while we're here, it could end up being fruitless when we get to wherever we're going. We'll be covering the whole chapter of 13 today, but I'll break it up into different sections as I read through. Follow along as I start reading right off in verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, Now they were in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's stop right there. You're like, well, this is a big chapter. If we're going to take it in three verse chunks, this is going to take a while. I'll speed up later on, I promise. But this first three verses here, we can see that these people are preparing. They're preparing to be sent. These men are, 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 are preaching and they're ministering and they're fasting and worshiping and praying. These men are making themselves available to be used by God. 
It isn't like they just came into church one day and Barnabas stands up and he's like, well, uh, looks like we're going to be taking a mission trip to Cyprus. Uh, anyone who's interested? And Paul's like, ooh, me, 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 pick me. I've always wanted to go to Cyprus. That sounds so exciting. Pick me. These men were devoting themselves day and night to Jesus and his work. And as they were fasting and praying and ministering, that's when God revealed to them where they were supposed to go and who should go. So if you have a desire to be sent, I ask again, what are you doing to prepare? We need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be in community with other believers. That is how we prepare to be sent. Verse 2 gives us something else we need to consider in this. The version I read says that Paul and Barnabas were set apart. When I think about the idea of being set apart, that doesn't actually seem that, that tough to me. Like, I can be set apart for something and still have most of the things that I want and enjoy. Like, I can, I can be set apart as a pastor and still enjoy all the comforts that I have here. But other translations, I really liked their translation of this it said separate onto me barnabas and saul before barnabas and saul could do anything for god they must first be separated if you are to be separated to god it means that you must separate from something else we can't really say yes to god's call on our life until we have been willing at least to say no to something that may be keeping you from that call any time that we say yes, we should prepare that yes with a no to something else. My wife is actually a perfect example. Saying yes to following Jesus almost 10 years ago would mean that she would eventually say no to a PhD. It was something that she always desired and she always wanted and she felt but as we walked this road following Jesus, she realized that it was it was her desires and not God's. Now, that will not be true for everyone. I'm not saying that you can't be a doctor or, or any sort of professional to follow Jesus. I'm just saying you have to be willing to say no to those things that you want and you desire in your heart if they are not what God truly wants for your life. What are these men being separated from? Comfort. They would, eventually, they would leave the safety of this local church to spend the majority of their lives moving from one place to the next, facing persecution at every turn, working odd jobs just to support themselves. They had loss of friendships. They lacked connections with family. Paul would eventually die single because he had devoted so much of his life to the Lord that he didn't even have time to slow down and even think about getting married or having kids. That's what he separated from. Every time we say yes to being separated to God, we have to be willing to say no. And most of the time it is to comforts. Going to foreign countries and eating foods that are strange or different. The number of times that I've talked to people and they're like, oh yeah, I want to go there, but I'm not eating that food. Really? Sleeping in some of the most interesting locations possible extreme heats or cold modern plumbing clean water every yes that we say to god should be prepared with a no 
Being sent is going in humble submission, not partial. Not, I will go, but I have to be able to have my Wi-Fi. Not, I will disciple this person only because I know them and have a relation with them, relationship with them. We simply say, send me, Lord, I will go. In verse 3, we see the sending church. And this is important to note. Paul and Barnabas didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? Let's go to Cyprus. That sounds great. Let's go off there. Pastor Warren Wearsby says, God had already called Paul to minister to the Gentiles back in Acts. Acts 9. And now he summoned Barnabas to labor with him. The church confirmed their calling, commissioned the men, and sent them forth. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the local church to equip and enlist believers to go forth and serve. The modern mission board is only a sending agency that expedites the work authorized by the local church. It is possible for you to go online, to go on Google today and just type in missions trips around the world or mission trips to a certain country. And you will find a trip and you can sign up and you can go. But that is not our desire here at Stonebridge. We want to partner with our people as this church reaches the lost to the ends of the world. We want to be sending people out. Which brings us to a very important subpoint in the topic of missions. What is missions? Sometimes we go and sometimes we stay. But does that mean that those that stay aren't on mission? No, they both are equally important. Going and staying are equally important. Even if we are staying, everything we do should be sent from the church. Even if you are going to the library tomorrow with your kids, be sent as you go. If you are going to Moms for Moms later this week, be sent as you go. As you go to your workplace tomorrow morning, be sent. All of these are aspects of missions. This is what I mean when I say we need to define what it actually is. Yes, missions does mean going to the ends of the world, but missions also means staying right in Jerusalem. Many of the apostles went, but many of them stayed. Our lives should be a life living on mission for Jesus. Sometimes we just want to go, go, go because it's actually harder to stay. Possibly more important at times, but it's harder to stay and to view our day-to-day as a mission field. Think about your life and think about the rest of this year, what it may look like for you. We have high schoolers and college kids who are going to be praying about possibly going out to camp and serving as a counselor. Camp is a mission field. Our jobs are a mission field. Your neighborhood is a mission field. Please do not disregard the mission field of Boone on your way to the ends of the world. In our next section, we can see our boys head out. And we can see what their first stop will be. So follow along again as I read, starting at verse 4. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, 
and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole isle, island as far as Paphros, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of a devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon them, fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead them, lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here we see our first stop. And we can read through the missionary journeys of Paul and most of these towns and countries. They don't even make sense to a lot of us unless you've done a lot of church history and understanding of the areas back then. Some of these countries and towns actually don't even exist anymore. But as we look at this map, the main thing, the, the main thing I want to point out is the importance of where Paul chooses to go. The towns and the cities that Paul chooses to stop in are on the major trade routes for the Roman world at that time. Many times Paul would head to a capital city and he would stay there for a while training up leaders and then sending them out into neighboring towns. He knew that these cities that he was going for, that they would be the hub of what could eventually be missionary activity. I think about that, and I think about our own SALT network and, and what the plans are. You know, it's, we go to Michigan State, but we know that there's 10 other ch- colleges within a 90-minute area of there, and so we're just going to hub here and shoot out into the other colleges around. We're going to actually meet some of the people that will get saved by the people that Paul is training up. We're going to see that as this book goes on. All of a sudden, people are going to start coming out of the woodwork that are getting saved. And Paul's like, how did you? Who are you? Because the people he's training and sending out are preaching the gospel as they go. Just like Paul, when we go, we need to have a plan. We need to know why we are going and where we will start and how we will reach the people in that area. Then in verse 8, we see opposition start to rise against our boys. I truly love Paul's response to the magician, right? It's like, you son of a devil! I love that. I'm not encouraging you all to encounter opposition this way. But maybe it, it warrants it in this passage. Like he's, he's just blunt and just comes right at him. It does help to see where this opposition is coming from, though, too. Yes, this magician is demon-possessed and is standing there trying to stop the work of the Lord. And this is the man standing in front of him, and Paul deals with him, but he understands 
This man is just an instrument in the hands of Satan. And so he calls it out immediately. He goes straight to the source of the opposition, Satan. Paul is pointing out, he's, he knows that his battle is with something greater than just magicians and people in the world. He knows that his battle is with powers and principalities that cannot be seen. If you are living on mission, you will most likely face opposition in some form or another. My own story of this, thinking to this idea of opposition, my first ever mission trip that I went on, we went to Puerto Rico and we took six high schoolers and my wife and I went. It was going to be a great trip and it was going to be awesome and we had all the plans and we, we had great connections. We met people from all over the world that we still have connections with. We saw our students' faith increase in amazing ways. We did incredible work while we were there. It was an amazing experience all around. But six days later after I got back, I started not feeling very great. Andrea just brushed it off to the man cold. She's like, you're fine, just knock it off. But it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And three days later, I was checked into the emergency room with something called dengue fever. The street name for it is break bone fever. What happens is the infection starts to settle into all of your joints and they call it breakbone fever because just by standing there, it felt like my fingers were going to break when I squeezed my hand. Every step I took sent shearing pain through my body. My organs started shutting down. I had fluid filling in behind my eyes so that every little bit of light and sound sent migraine shearing through my brain. Fun time, right? That could have stopped me from ever wanting to go on a mission for beginning. We don't have dengue fever in America. We don't have to worry about that. That could have happened to me and, and my students and all of this, and, and they could have been like, we're, we're never going to go again. Why would we ever go to someplace like this again? But it didn't. Through the sickness, we had those people that we met from all over the country praying for us. I had my students coming to the hospital room and sitting with me and praying with me. I told everyone, quite honestly, I'm like, I'm glad it was me and not one of the students. And it was rough for six weeks, but we got over it. Opposition can help increase our faith and it can help spread the gospel. When we see where this opposition is truly coming from, when we don't just get angry and bitter, when we confront it and push through it. Two years later, we would go right back to Puerto Rico, the same exact place, town and everything that, we got, that I got sick in, but this time I took 26 students with me. I want to finish this section and just look again at those last verses. Through this opposition and confrontation, this Roman authority comes to know Jesus. And so through our opposition and the confrontations that may come in our life, people around us may come to know Jesus. That last verse says, he was astonished because of the gifts he saw performed, right? No. He was astonished because of the miracles. No. He was astonished because of the teaching, because of the Word of God. He was astonished by that. I have been reading my Bible for almost 10 years now, and I am still astonished at the things I read. 
We go around looking for signs and miracles for astonishment. But this book should be astonishing to each and every follower of Jesus. Be astonished by it. Let it soak into you day by day. That, being rooted in Scripture, is what's going to help push through the opposition and struggles that come through life. With that, let's start to dig into our final section here. This is the second stop on their journey. I'm going to break this up a little bit too. There's a, a big chunk here, but there's a sermon in here as well. And I, I just want to read it, the whole thing, just because of the importance of God's word. And so first up, verses 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set, stale, set sail from Paphros and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So first off, we see this second stop and we see, we're starting to see a pattern here. We're going to see it over and over again. As they walk into this new town, every time they head to the synagogue or the temple. Why? Why do they always start there? The simple answer is that in the very early days of the followers of Jesus, they, they considered themselves to be Jews as well. So that's, they went to the synagogues because that's what Jews did. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish laws and prophecies, that he had come to redeem the Jews, not set up another religion. That's not what the purpose was. It was all supposed to be together. The idea that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, might be converted without becoming Jews first, that would only controversial be considered many years later, and actually in a few more chapters for us. So they went to the synagogues first because that was the people that Jesus came to. But that wasn't the only reason, not just because it was the hub of religious activity, but because it was the hub of everything. That is, where the, that is why the Gentiles were even there to hear. Throughout Scripture, we hear stories of those who are suffering sitting in the temple. We read stories of markets within the temples. The, the temple was the hub of activity, and even non-Jews were drawn to it. What is that for us? Where is Boone's temple location? Where is it that people are drawn to in this community? For each of us at different stages in our life, it may be a different place, right? For some of us, it, it may be the bakery because we're there every single day doing work and that's our temple and we see the people that are there. Other places, it's for high schoolers, it's the commons area. Where is that hub of activity for you? Nevertheless, wherever it is, how are we preparing to be sent as we enter those locations, those temple locations? Are we praying, God, send me as we walk in to pick up our coffee and donut? Because you just don't know what interactions can come. Next up, we see Paul's sermon. From verses 16 through 40, we can see Paul's sermon. And this is the first of Paul's sermons recorded in the book of Acts. And it can be divided into three parts. And each of those parts are introduced with the phrase, Men or brethren, men of God, brethren, depending on what translation. And 
in Paul's sermon, we can see those three main points are preparation, declaration, and application. So the first part of his sermon, starting at verse 16, says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of his people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. So there we see that preparation. He's preparing his listeners for what he's about to say. He's unfolding the entire history of Israel in about nine verses, which is pretty incredible. But you guys did it for like over a year, right, going through the whole Bible. He did it nine verses, so we need to learn something from Paul. But it's incredible. He's, he's saying, this is where we're coming from. This is what led to where we are right now. We need to remember that. We need to remember not only the history of God throughout all of his people, but just the history of God in our own lives. Where has he brought us from? What has he done in our lives? We need to know that so that we can be prepared for what he is doing right now and into the future. Next up, we can see Paul's declaration. Starting at verse 26, he says, Brothers, son of the family, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of, his, of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by con- condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us. Let's stop. Actually, let's keep, sorry. That he fulfilled to us. Children of uh, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So this is Paul's declaration, his declaring of the good news, the story of Jesus, and and how this story, it didn't just start when Jesus was born. He's pointing out to them, this has been the plan the whole time. This has been the mission the whole time. The thread of the gospel has run throughout the entire Old Testament to this very point we are standing here today. That is the declaration of Paul to these people. And his final four verses of his sermon, we can see his application. Starting at verse 38. It says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that, will not, that they will not believe, even if one tells it to you. This is the heart of the gospel. That through one man, Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And there is no other way to find freedom and, and eternal life than through the blood of Jesus. Not good works, not keeping the commands of God, not giving large amounts of money, not even church attendance. Those are all very important and necessary as we obediently follow Jesus. But they are not what offers us freedom through belief and acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That is the only way we will find that freedom. Now, as usual, when the apostles preach in the temples, there are two very different responses. And we can see that in our final few verses of today. It says, As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. But when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them from their districts. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Two very different responses as usual. First, the Gentiles, they're rejoicing and they beg them to come back. Please come back. We want to hear more of what you're saying. We want to hear more of this Jesus. What is your attitude when we come to church, especially on a cold morning like today? Do we long to get back here every week? Do we 
Do you beg matter I for more opportunities to serve and to get connected with God's people? We had a man who recently started attending our church who after his first Sunday here, he messaged me. And he's asking me if we have midweek services and if we have this and we have that. He just wanted more Jesus. He just wanted to be here and experience what he had felt. We have people here who it seems like they are at every single event we do, that they're constantly in the church. It feels like every single time the doors are open, people are, these people are here. They just want to be where God's presence is and to be part of what God is doing here. We see that the, the, the Gentiles, they rejoiced in the word and they glorified God. They were excited and they were celebrating what was being told to them. And then they accept the gospel. They accept that gift of salvation. On the other hand, we see the response of the Jews. Not all of the Jews. Some of them came to know as well, but a good portion of them. More opposition came. Jealousy, anger. They chased them out of town. They disbelieve what is being said to them. The unbelieving Jews were not just going to sit back and let Paul and Barnabas take over. First, they disputed with them, and then they brought legal action against them, and then they finally threw them out of the borders of the country. These missionaries were not discouraged, though. They shook off the dust of their feet as Jesus had commanded them to do as they were to go, and they went to the next town, but they left behind them a group of joyful disciples that it says continued to spread that message Verse 46 and 47, I want to highlight. These verses are the hinge between the book of Acts. Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah, stating that Israel was meant to be a light to the world around them. They were meant to be holy and set apart for Yahweh, but their continual rejection of the promised Messiah has shifted everything. They missed the point. They were putting their trust in the past. They were putting their trust in the commands and in the Torah and in everything from their past, but they missed what it was all pointing to. Some of you may be there as well, putting your trust in the past, the past works of your parents or your grandparents. Throughout my years talking with Christian teens, I hear repeatedly, I like to ask the question, what's your God story? And repeatedly, I'll hear the same start of it when it's these lifelong Christian teens. They're like, well, my parents have just always brought me to church. I've always known God. Yeah, my my parents always went to church. Those are fine things to say. Those are great things to say. Those are foundational, incredible points, but they're not enough. It's not enough to just come to church. We come here to be changed by Jesus. We come here to grow in our relationship with Jesus. The Jews had grown up their whole lives reading the Old Testament and going to temple. They were the chosen people, but they missed the point. Students, young adult, children that are in here today, I beg you not to go through life riding the coattails of your parents or grandparents. God gave them to you as a guide, as a foundation, not to be your Savior. Paul and his traveling partners would now put their main focus on the non-Jews, the Gentiles, people like you and I. 
The Jews were meant to be a light to the world by people coming to them. But we are meant to be a light to the world by us going to the world. In conclusion, I just want to leave you with a few lingering questions. Things for you to think about today, tomorrow, the rest of your week. Maybe questions for you to talk about in your connection group or in Bible study or even contacting Matt and I if it's something you want to wrestle with us on these questions. How are you preparing? What are you doing in your day-to-day walk with Jesus to be prepared for God to send you? Are you open to being sent? If you started to feel that tugging in your heart when CJ was talking about going to Turkey, are you open to that? Or is your first response, no way. It's too scary. That's too dangerous. Do you know what the gospel is? Do you believe that being separated from something, whether good or bad, we can be separated from good things and from bad things. Do you believe that being separated from something is worth it? Are you willing to say no to something? And lastly, is God enough? He prepared a way for you on the cross. What way are you preparing for him? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas and and all the other men that we will start seeing in the next few chapters. If it wasn't for men like this, where would any of us be right now? And so God, I pray for our people that they can understand what it means to live a life on mission, that they can prepare themselves to be sent by you. Maybe it's to the ends of the world. Maybe it's to next door. But God, help us to prepare each and every day to be sent. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.